It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. My guest today is an accomplished trombonist, composer, arranger, and educator. His name is Dr. Javier Nero. Nero holds a Bachelor of Music degree from the Juilliard School, a Master of Music from the University of Miami in studio jazz writing, and he graduated in May of 2017 with a Doctor of Music Arts degree from the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami. His musical career has been shaped by such jazz luminaries as Carl Allen, Steve Turay, John DeVersa, Shelley Berg, and Brian Lynch. This in-demand musician is also currently serving in the military as a trombonist with the premier jazz ensemble of the U.S. Army. He has two album releases as a leader to his credit, the first of which was the 2020 recording Freedom, and just recently his second album on the Outside in Music label is called Kemet. The Black Land, which is a tribute to the ancient Egyptian, highly advanced black civilization. Join me now for a conversation with this fascinating young man as we learn about his story and his music. Javier, it's a pleasure to have you as our guest on All That's Jazz. Thanks a lot for having me on. You have accomplished so much in your life thus far. You're not only an incredible musician, you're an educator, a composer. You're originally from Portland, Oregon, if I uh, am correct? That's technically correct so like i usually tell people that because it gets to be confusing i'm actually from a small suburb of portland called vancouver washington it's right across the uh, river there uh the columbia river uh, everyone always thinks washington dc and everyone thinks vancouver bc so it's always easier to tell people portland oregon but that is where i kind of got most of my uh, music musical background i did a lot of uh, uh, extracurricular musical activities in portland so how did the music begin to creep into your life, uh, become a part of it as it is today? Were you influenced uh, by either parents, uh, someone you know in uh, the business or a relative that may be uh, a musician uh, in his or her own right? Yeah, I mean, all of the above. My dad is a big fan of jazz, so I grew up listening to Freddie Hubbard, Miles Davis, Woody Shaw, John Coltrane. I, I, I heard all of those things like in my household growing up, um, in addition to like Earth, Wind & Fire, Tower Power, a lot of those like horn section bands, and a lot of classic R&B soul music as well. And uh, my parents actually forced me to join band when I was in the sixth grade. And my parents said, oh, you should play an instrument. I didn't really want to do it. I was pretty resistant. But they felt since I was kind of a shy kid and kind of a little bit more introverted, that playing music would kind of help me come out of my shell. And um, some family friends of ours had, were having a garage sale and they had an old trombone 
and my parents brought it home and told me that like said, hey here here it is this is what you're going to play wow and that was basically how it started so it's been trombone since the beginning you didn't start out on the piano or pick up a trumpet or saxophone i started off like for like i was playing drums like percussion and at the time like um it was only for like two weeks of, of like the beginner band class and all we had was like a little drum pad and some sticks and they were trying to teach us how to do like little like rolls and stuff like that and that's as far as i got with that before we ended up getting the instrument and i switched to trombone um i, I also we also always had like an upright piano at our house too so i've always kind of dabbled on the piano a little bit but i never had any formal training on it until i got to college what is it uh, that pushed you along on the trombone side of things i mean other like i mean there really wasn't like i was really going into it like kind of as like a you know it was like kind of a clean slate i didn't really have any any expectations or really know anything about music really on a on a deeper level whatsoever so when i started playing in band the thing that just kind of kept me in it is i enjoyed the social aspect of it i enjoyed i had like a lot of good friends in band and it, you know it's kind of like a almost it's like a teamwork kind of thing and so I enjoyed that aspect of it. And I think that's the thing that kind of helped me uh, stick with it. And then at a certain point, I, I enjoyed the competitive aspect of competing like in high school, these different like band festivals. I was doing mostly wind ensemble stuff um, until I got really serious about jazz, like around my sophomore year of high school. And um, I enjoyed that aspect of it too. Like eventually I started wanting to be more of a soloist and actually take solos in front of the band. And so then jazz kind of lent itself more to that um, side of things, a little bit more personal expression as opposed to only playing with the ensemble. Well, that's interesting because you started out by saying you were somewhat of an introvert and here you are wanting to be the soloist, standing out. <laughs> I mean, it was still like nerve wracking, you know, but obviously when you, when you get really serious about it, you start practicing and as you get a little bit better, the confidence starts to build and um, eventually you feel confident to stand in front of the band and play a solo. But I used to like, you know, be like extremely afraid of doing something like that. Did you have a, a mentor or a, a person who took you under their wing and said, all right, Javier, here's where it's going to happen and how it's going to happen? I wouldn't say anyone like on like a like a super minutia level like that, like, you know, that was kind of walking me through. But like, I mean, I had some really great like uh, band directors and um, like even my my public school uh system had had really great music educators uh one that i think of in particular is uh lewis norfleet who still directs bands he's actually down in um, like southern oregon now and i actually had the opportunity to go play as a guest artist with his high school band uh this past summer so that was kind of cool to to be on the other side of everything and now be working with his students when i once was one of his students i had great middle school band directors uh bruce dunn steve kusky was also another one of my band directors Thera Memory led a um, conglomerate band in the Portland area that was really, I think, pivotal in a lot of um, uh, young musicians' careers and development because it put us in a room with all of the other students that were just as serious, if not more, than us. And so you could really see what was out there. And with that group, we, we kind of went around the country and did different festivals. We went to the Berkeley uh, College of Music Festival and all different stuff like that. So it really gave us a sampling of what the highest level was and enabled you to be competitive on like a national level rather than just feeling like you're the the big fish in the small pond in portland oregon so i was fortunate to get you know to to get some hands-on with some really amazing 
musicians when I was young, and that really I feel like paved the way of setting a vision and and, and knowing what the highest level is. So, were there any uh, well-known trombonists who were really an inspiration for you that might? have uh, resulted in your listening to them over and over again and trying to either emulate or try to reach their level of playing? I mean, when I was in high school, to be honest, I wasn't listening to that many contemporary players. I was listening mostly to J.J. Johnson and Curtis Fuller. I was transcribing all of their, all of their solos. That's who I was. Those were like my, my people. Um, and then a couple of the contemporary trombonists I think have been a huge influence on me are uh, Andre Hayward, used to play in the uh, jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Now he's down in uh, Texas uh, teaching and still plays great. Uh, Vincent Gardner is another big influence on me, who also plays the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Uh, Marshall Jilks, Michael Dees. Those are some of the, some of the younger guys um, that, I've, that I've checked out. And then obviously my teacher, Steve Teray, is was a huge influence on me too by the time I got to school. So you ended up at Juilliard School of Music, and was it, because of a uh, an award of scholarship uh, through the trombone? Yeah, I mean, I, I ended up getting a scholarship. You know, Juilliard's an interesting uh, uh, story because that was one of the only programs that I had applied for coming out of high school. And um, I was a part of this uh, program called, uh, at the time it was uh, partially affiliated with uh, National Foundation for the Advancement of the Arts, but it's this program out of Miami called Young Arts Foundation. And they sponsored this one week thing, basically like this workshop for, for all these different disciplines. And they have it, they put together a jazz band of all these hot shots from high school. So I played in that group and that year we didn't have a drummer and Carl Allen, who was currently the director at uh, Juilliard ended up filling in and playing drums with the student ensemble for that week. And so I ended up connecting with him. He got to hear my, hear me play. And he kind of recruited me to go to Juilliard at that point and so i ended up going and doing the audition and they accepted me and they gave me the scholarship so that was kind of like a chance circumstance that i ended up uh, meeting the director of the program and kind of being led down that path because at the time like juilliard like seemed a little bit out of reach for me and their audition requirements were like way more uh, involved than all of the other schools and i was like i don't know if i have the time to do this i don't know if i want to do it so it ended up working out well, apparently it worked out well because then you ended up on your educational path at the University of Miami uh, Frost School of Music, where you achieved not only a master's degree, but also a doctorate. I ended up writing my paper uh, specifically, as most doctoral essays are, like on a very specific topic. And mine is about basically developing um, a multiple tonguing technique for the trombone, which enables trombone players to articulate and play cleanly at, at high tempos. And I used uh, referenced J.J. Johnson and Curtis Fuller in order in order to kind of uh, lay the groundwork for, for the technique that I use, which is the double tongue technique, which is usually uh, a little bit associated more with classical players. And a lot of times jazz players use what's called the doodle tongue technique, which is a little bit softer, a little bit more legato uh, tonguing style. So. That was like my, my doctoral essay, but the actual coursework there was actually very broad. I continued to work on a lot of um, uh, compositional stuff. My master's degree was in composition and arranging, and but throughout the doctorate, I continued to work on that. And I took lessons with um, John Diversa, who's a great composer and director. I, I also continued to take lessons with Shelley Berg, uh, who's the dean of the music school there, a great pianist and composer and arranger. 
and I wrote music for all the ensembles there, including the vocal ensembles and uh, the orchestra. And having accomplished all of that, uh, did you pack up your trombone and take your resume and your doctorate degree and say, you know what, it's time for me to move on into a professional gig? And I'm asking this only because I'm wondering where in the progression of your development that the U.S. Army Ensemble Band came into play. Those bands actually um, have always been kind of on my radar but they never were things that I ever really thought about doing myself. Um, I talked a lot about my influences in high school about, you know, talking about J.J. Johnson, Curtis Fuller, people who I was transcribing. But um, the Air Force band, the uh, uh, the, the Airmen of Note, is, you know, they record albums every year. Mm -hmm. And I've been listening to that ensemble for many, many years. And so those, those ensembles and, like, the way that they're able to play and they play so cleanly and pristinely as an ensemble have always been inspiring to me, especially as a writer, because you can listen to those ensembles, you can really hear the arranging involved because of how, how clearly they're performed. So it's always been a great resource to listen to in that way, in addition to just enjoying the way it sounds. But I think it was in 2014, I uh, actually, I competed and won in the, um, the U.S. Army Blues uh, Jazz Trombone Competition. At the time, it was called the Eastern Trombone Workshop. They host uh, a competition for jazz trombonists. And I, I think they also, um, at the time, they also did classical competitions and stuff like that as well. Um, now it's called the American Trombone Workshop. And so mm. now I'm on the other side of it and I get to be the judge and everything. And so I, I heard uh, the band back there and I was like, back then, and I was like, wow, this is a, a great ensemble. But I was like, no way am I ever gonna join the US Army. I think they had another uh, player uh, at the time that was retiring. So that a few of the members had asked me like, Hey, you should audition. We have a spot opening up. This all doesn't happen very often. A lot of those positions are occupied for 20 or 30 years once they're filled. And at the time I was finishing my master's in arranging and had already applied and was hoping to be going to school for my doctorate the next year. And so I said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna apply for that. And the, the pivotal moment was, uh, I was back living in New York city and COVID hit and everything had, had essentially shut down and kind of makes you reevaluate things when you're living in New York in a little tiny one bedroom apartment. And now you can't really go outside and like and experience the city for what it has to offer. And um, so that was the moment. And there happened to be three openings for trombone at that time. So the Airman of Note had two openings. And the, uh, the army band actually had an audition for lead trombone and didn't accept anybody and reopened it again. So I was like, wow, if this is the time to do this, because very rarely do you see these spots open, let alone three of them at once. Mm -hmm. So I ended up taking the auditions for, for both bands, the army band and the air force band. And, uh, luckily I won positions in both. And then I had to kind of make a decision based on, you know, how the gigs operated on, on which band to to take yeah when did you join the army so i joined in january of 2021 and i asked that because i know your first album as a leader was freedom and that came out in 2020 and on the cover 
is a picture of this young man in a marvelous Afro haircut, which <laughs> obviously would not have worked well in the army. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny too, because I think that somehow like that hairstyle of mine ended up becoming very iconic. But in reality, that was only like a small phase of my life. I had my hair like that for like two or three years. And for the majority of my life, my hair was always kind of cut like, like it is now. And, uh, it's also ironic that the that the tune is called Freedom, and then I end up joining the the army <laughs> later. But at the time, I, I promise it had nothing had no correlation to that, you know. So, are you still in the army? Yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still part of the ensemble, and yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I've I've really enjoyed about um, this job is that while it does require a lot of you know dedication and time to the to the ensemble. Um, I've, I've been able to continue to further my interests in other ways as well at the same time. And, uh, and that's really great too, because the other members of the ensemble are always performing on the outside as well. And then we come back together and bring all of that, you know, all of that information and all that, um, skill that we're attaining elsewhere and bringing it back, uh, into the ensemble. So how long will you stay in the Army? Is this going to be a career position for you, or, or have you really thought about it that far in advance? I'm just taking it as, as, as it comes right now, but, I mean, I have no serious complaints about the job right now. I'm really happy in the position. Um, my colleagues are great musicians, great people. And, um, again, like I mentioned about, like, you know, enjoying the teamwork aspect of, playing in an ensemble and like, I mean, the army is exactly that, you know, it's like a big team and now we're all part of like something bigger than ourselves. And I, I enjoy that aspect a lot. With that commitment, then how did you find time to uh, deliver this new incredible recording of yours, your sophomore release called uh, Kemet, The Black Land? Yeah, I mean, just takes a lot of scheduling and preparation and, and making sure you're organized with your time. But we do have times throughout the year where were less busy than others. And so I found I found a, a period of time where, where I was able to devote some, some time to, to getting into the studio. Well, the, the new album is just rather impressive. You chose not only incredible musicians, you showcase your compositions, but then you had this theme uh, paying homage to uh, an ancient Egyptian black culture and civilization. How did that happen? Yeah, it's just something I, I discussed with my um, with my my family a little bit, like over the years. Uh, my older brothers are both uh, very interested in in black culture and history, um, so we've had many discussions about that and how it relates to who we have become now in this country today as well. It's it's a topic that's not often talked about. I feel like most of the intellectual side of things and anything regarding democracy, mathematics. Anything from higher education seems to be discussed as though it came from Greek antiquity. We think about, you know, Athens, Greece, we think about Rome. But in reality, Kemet was this place where all of those people actually learned a lot of those uh, sciences. So that all came from this place and dispersed into the Western world and eventually now to where we are now today in America and uh, the Western world. I'm not like so much of a political person, to be honest, but like I do like the idea of other of, of people understanding how effective and how great of a society we can have when we work together and 
to me, that's what the, what this place, what this ancient land kind of represented, where you, you had this place where people would come, all of the intellectuals from all these different lands would come to this central place and share information with each other and have these wild debates and they would play music together and, and kind of try to figure out what the truth is and what's the best way to live and how to, how to discover the next thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like that idea. And I think that like the idea of democracy and the ideas that are founding principles of this country, when they're actually done correctly, we, we have an ability to become advanced and move forward really quickly, but it doesn't always work. When you were putting this together, did you study some of the Kemet, maybe uh, what the uh, type of music was back then? Not exactly, but I think that just through tradition and through um, study of, of other styles, I think that it, that it, it comes it comes through through that history. So what one of the things that's that's interesting is they actually say, and some historians say that when Kemet was invaded by the Arabs, a lot of the people that fled that place actually fled to what is now modern day West Africa. And the Nigerians are now the people that actually carried a lot of that information with them. And you can see a lot of um, similarities in the clothing and the jewelry, et cetera. So the modern Nigerians who eventually uh, made it to Cuba, the Caribbean and to the, the Americas, a lot of that musical tradition that was an oral tradition passed down and be a tradition of, of performing that actually is an offshoot of that ancient place. And so one of the, one of the uh, things that I did definitely try to do was uh, implement as much uh, African influence into the style of that, of that uh, composition. And that kind of just comes through in all of my music in general, just because that's just who I am. That's my identity as a musician. I've studied a lot of that music and I feel that, that rhythm pretty much every time I'm, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing a new tune. So yeah, Kemet, kind of embodies that spirit of different elements coming together. You have the African influence and then you have, obviously I have like a Western classical music influence as well. And you kind of hear that in the orchestrational style and a little bit of like almost a wind ensemble type feel and harmonic uh, devices that I use as well. So it's kind of the, the bringing together of the best of all of those different uh, disparate cultures. Are all of the uh, tracks on this album your own compositions? Yeah, they are. Um, all of these are original compositions. There's a couple bonus tracks that are available online, and those are actually both arrangements of um, of either jazz standards or American songbook standards. I did an arrangement of um, It's All Right With Me, Cole Porter, and um, Contemplation by McCoy Tyner. But other than the ones on the physical album, those are all original compositions. In putting together this group of musicians for the recording uh, for Comet, you have some people like uh, Josh Richman uh, on piano. You've got a drummer, Kyle Swan. You've got uh, Tom Green on sax. Uh, and then Christy Dashiell doing vocals. But then you have three very special guests uh, that were uh, really... Uh, I think uh, wonderfully uh, great additions to your choices, like Sean Jones and Randy Brecker, both two of the finest trumpeters that there are, and then Warren Wolf on Vibes. Yeah, so uh, I'm really fortunate. I mean, the, the band is, is great, you know, really great musicians. Why don't we explore some of the tracks on this album? 
One of the things I'd like to start out with is a tune called One Day, which uh, to me kind of almost sums up the theme of the album, especially when you're trying to portray this harmonious world where people are living together and it's how it should be. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the lyrics of that one are pretty simple. It's, you know, if you, when, if you take a listen to it, it sounds almost kind of a little bit like a nursery rhyme or some type of like simple folk tune you might sing to a uh, to a child. But yeah, that, that tune came about just kind of randomly. I was just in my room playing on the piano and came up with this little quick riff. And then the orchestration of that song is probably the thing that kind of gives adds a, adds a little bit of complexity and depth to it. Woodwinds and the soloists add like a new element, and there's also a lot of voice as well. Tell me about your title track, Comet. Yeah, with with a lot of my my big band stuff, I think a little bit about sonic pictures and landscapes. And in the case of this one, you know, just like the what we we talked a lot about what that actual place was, and this vision of this, you know, this society that was thriving and beautiful and lush and the composition there i was trying to create this like larger sonic image and of like a large landscape and like a vision of you know the pyramids and like gold and all of these different types of like lush vegetation and water etc did try and purposefully add elements of different cultural musical traditions like we have the African um, rhythms in there uh, we use the voice the clapping and then larger more dense and open orchestrations that kind of create a larger sonic landscape where the where the where the ensemble feels huge or like an orchestra rather than like a small band you mentioned uh, elements uh, and trying to reflect those uh, in the pieces and so on. And you had said water. 
<laughs> there is one track on here which I think is exquisite. It, it's it's just a beautiful song, and that's the reflections on a dark, tranquil water. Yeah, um, that composition was written when I was living in Miami. I had this. Um, I was living in this beautiful um, townhome, and uh, it had a lake, a man-made lake, in the backyard that was in the middle of the community. So everyone's backyards and their decks would look out onto this lake. And so when you walk outside and we would actually take a canoe out there and kind of just go out in the middle of the night and just like sit out on the lake and it was just this beautiful serene experience times my compositional approach is is perhaps the opposite of what what a lot of people may think musicians and composers do and a lot of times i'll write a piece of music and then reflect upon how it makes me feel or the vision or the images that that the the music evokes and then that's how i come up with my title but like the the actual experience of something or trying to impose on myself i'm going to write something that sounds like this as it's usually actually the reverse Right. So like I came up with that title after hearing the way the music sounded. And it's like, oh, this kind of is reminiscent of the feeling or the sound that I would I would attribute to my experience of going out on the lake as opposed to going out on the lake and then coming back and then writing a song that sounds like that. The one song that I particularly like on here uh, and has a wonderful title to it, it's uh, Nostalgic Haiku. So, I mean, that one was... Actually, one of the tunes that I've actually kind of forced myself to try to start with some like pre-ordered structure. And so like a haiku in literary terms is, uh, is a poem that has a structure of five syllables, seven syllables, and then five syllables again. And um, so in the beginning of that composition, I tried to, to force myself to actually use that form. And so the melody is five, is five notes and then, and then a phrase of seven notes and then a phrase of five notes again. continues that for a while and then eventually once like I had started getting more ideas from from the from the melody and from the notes that I was using eventually I kind of broke off from that from that strict form and then the word nostalgic just comes from the way those notes felt to me would that also fall into step with the the first track on the the album which is the blues reincarnated 
<laughs> well, like the blues is one of those interesting things because a lot of people think about a specific song form, like the 12 bar blues or a specific style. You think of like Muddy Waters or B.B. King or something like that, where it's like a very specific style. But the blues to me is has actually has a lot more depth than any specific set of pitches or any specific style in that way. And I think the blues has been reincarnated in a whole bunch of different styles and in a bunch of different ways throughout like American music. So like when you listen to like rock and roll, that's like still has elements of blues in it. You listen to jazz, it still has blues in it. When you listen to James Brown and funk, it definitely there's blues as an element that's that's that is uh, intrinsic to that style. And this was just my version of that. And you'll hear in this one, like obviously there's a lot of funk influence on this on this track. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that like neo soul kind of thing as well. Um, so this was just another incarnation of the blues in a, in a different form other than that 12 bar blues, you know, with the shuffle or our, our uh, typical conception of what that is. Speaking of reincarnation, uh, I, I was uh, intrigued by the fact that among the tracks uh, on this album are uh, the tunes called Discord and Just Let Go. Those were also on your Freedom album. Oh yeah, that's, tr that's correct. Yeah. So, just arranged differently or did you feel like you know what Th this is so good i need to include this in because it fits the overall theme of what i'm doing on this recording yeah i mean it's a little bit of like both of those things um discord you never know as a composer for like like which tunes are going to resonate with with your audience you know discord I, I is a tune of mine that i like but it's not my favorite tune and i certainly don't think it's like the most technically satisfying tune that i've ever written you know as a composer you like writing stuff that's like where you push yourself to the limits and uh, really document everything that you can do discord is not that tune for me however it seems to be the tune that everyone really resonated with on the first album mm -hmm. um, and that tune just continues to land on all these different playlists on all the uh, streaming services so i felt it, i felt it made sense to to do another version of that one especially since uh christy the shield is a great singer and i wanted to make sure that i had her on a, on enough tracks and i knew that she would do a great job with that tune
what you were to me, my dear. Let's hear that special song you sing for me. Similarly to the way Sean plays, I feel like Christy um, and I are coming from like a very similar color palette. In addition to all that, Discord and Just Let Go were just tunes I think that would give the album balance. I didn't want everything to be super loud and raucous. Um, I wanted to have some moments of tenderness and a little bit of a place for a reprieve sonically. So I think those both provide that as well. And then lastly, uh, on the album itself, uh, I don't know if there's a pattern here or if there is some connection whatsoever, but on the Freedom album, you have a great tune called Jam 2, and on this album, you have Jam 3. Yeah, so you've unlocked all the, uh, the Easter eggs on the album. Do I get the prize? No. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, you know, some of the old composers, uh, Bach and, all, and Beethoven, Mozart, all the stuff, they would categorize their music by, uh, by key. They would say, like, Nocturne and C-sharp or whatever. And so I came up with a more on-the-nose type of categorization for some of the tunes that I wrote. And because they literally came up as uh, as little jam things that we would play at, at jam sessions, I had people over at my house when I lived in Miami, and when this one was composed, and I came up with this little riff that I'd play on the piano, which is what is the actual opening riff of the tune. riffing on that and like playing for like 20 or 30 minutes and everyone would take solos and we kind of see how far we could go with just like this simple figure and so all of the tunes that I kind of composed as a result of having these little jam sessions I ended up calling them jams so that was jam number three the other one was jam number two jam number one hasn't been recorded yet but that's kind of part of I guess the fun of people always having to wonder what number one is keep a little mystery there well, this is absolutely an incredible composition uh, of yours. Uh, recording, Comet, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, needs to be heard and heard often. And I, I, I don't know, what, where do you go from here, Javier? We'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm just hoping to, to find more venues to perform live. And other than that, I'm just going to continue to perform in the area and around. Well, you have brought much to the table Good, sir. And I, I would like to ask you then, uh, how can some of our listeners learn more about you and the music of Javier Nero? Yeah, you can check out my uh, website, JavierNero.com. Um, also, all of my music is on all of the major streaming services. So if you use Apple Music or Spotify or any of those uh, title, any of those types of streaming services, you can listen to both of my albums on there. 
And uh, you can also uh, shoot me a message on Instagram uh, at Dr. Javier Nero. And if you'd like to order a physical copy of the album, you can do that directly through me or through the form on my website as well. So hope to hear from you guys. And I would like to uh, thank you, Javier, for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to us about your rich, wonderful background and your marvelous music that has been put out and available for all to hear and enjoy. And thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Of course, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with trombonist, composer, arranger, and educator, Dr. Javier Nero. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.